0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Seth David Radwell, is an internationally known business executive and thought leader in consumer marketing with a keen interest in democratic values and American public policy. Past leadership roles include president of eScholastic, the digital arm of the global children's publishing and education conglomerate, president of Bookspan, Bertelsmann, which includes Book of the Month Club, Doubleday Book Club, and Literary Guild, and many other leadership roles in the world of corporate marketing. His recent book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation, written during the COVID-19 pandemic and published in 2021, won the International Book Award for Best General Nonfiction in 2022. And that's the subject of today's interview. So Seth, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's really a pleasure to be with you today.
0: So first of all, I just want to congratulate you on having found such a productive use of the pandemic years. You're not actually the first one that I've interviewed who did that, but it's not that common. I'd also like to express my appreciation on your thoroughly researched book to the highest standards of a professional historian. And I can only imagine the dedication and number of hours it must have taken. Clearly, you have a passion for the subject and also a sense of urgency about the state of our democracy, that surely fueled your efforts. So let's hear a little bit about that sense of urgency at the beginning of your writing process and also in its evolution to the present time.
1: Yes, it's a it's a, a great uh, background question because I, I must admit that my whole life I've been uh, passionate about history and philosophy uh, as, a, as a student of the enlightenment. And even though my entire career was in business, I've always been very current with thinking about political science and issues I would say in the civic arena and it was during the the last 10 years or so that I was increasingly concerned Stuart about the the nature of our discourse civic discourse in, in the country uh, convinced that it had really collapsed and that we were in a situation which I think we're still in where rancor and Acrimony really have crowded out reason, and so that's why I started. That was originally the impetus to do research. At the time, I was CEO of uh, an acne brand, Proactive. I left that job in 2018 and started doing research that I thought would lead to a bunch of a bunch of articles. It ended up happening that the pandemic hit after I had done a lot of research, and it led to American Schism, the book. So. Basically, I've always been really interested in this area, but I do believe we're at a very unique point in our history. What, the, what my research and what the book does essentially is it's an investigative tracing of the histories of our divisions, trying to find out why we are where we are. The, the, I would say I'm a believer that history is really important. I often say history can act as a solve for our wounds, if only we'd apply it. And so what the book tries to do is, and I think it does pretty successfully, is distill learnings from our history. We were, as you probably know, very often in our history, divided bitterly. And so this is not the first time as a country we've been divided, but there are some unique things about where we are today. And there are some real lessons from our history that i think would behoove us to pay attention to
0: and of course you're talking about a history not just political history but also intellectual history and as those two things are intertwined and obviously it's true that we've often been divided and the, the country started with tremendous divisions around slavery that would kind of got papered over so to speak absolutely and that didn't work in the long term it worked for a while almost 100 years
1: <laughs> it worked for some people let's say that, that's cool. that's true of course yeah it worked well for some people i think One of the first episodes in the book is about, in fact, how divided we were right at our founding. What I call the American Schism, the original American Schism, in fact, was split, a division between two very different schools of thought in the Enlightenment, which is, of course, the history during which our country was founded. And there were two very different philosophies for what the United States should become, and That original cleavage, that original division, that original schism, I argue in the book is really important to understand because it's very much, it's the precursor, if you will, it's it's the, the roots of where we are today.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that distinction. That's, I think, the core of your book, the distinction between the radical and the moderate enlightenment and also the counter-enlightenment, those three different forces. Uh, I, I just also want to make a disclaimer f- for your sake that, that it's, it's fair to say that the book is, is unabashedly focused on the uh, socio-political forces and associated intellectual development centered in the U.S. and Europe, especially England and France. And some critics of your book take issue with this being too exclusive a focus But I think for the sake of this conversation, let's just take it as a given that the Enlightenment thought originated in these countries and spread from there. And it would take another volume or two of the book to explore how these ideas were grappled with around the world. So we're not going to get to that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Let me just make a point, though, because I'm very much a believer, as many have written about Susan Neiman and Steven Pinker, that the Enlightenment movement was a universalist movement. The argument that's been in vogue for the last 50 years that the Enlightenment somehow is not so relevant or because it was a bunch of white Europeans that it's less important, I believe that argument is completely invalid. I think that the Enlight- Enlightenment thinking and the notion of reason being fundamental aspect of prosperity, the, of, of humanity, was very much discussed and, and was the subject of the Enlightenment to a large degree, and that's very valid. Yes, I, I do believe the Enlightenment is the grounding for the thinking in the book. And I think that's appropriate in the sense that the enlightenment is the reason why we have a country. And it was certainly in the modern era, in my view, the enlightenment framework has been what's responsible for tremendous prosperity uh, that we we must hold on to.
0: The other thing I wanted to mention, and I think it's already clear from the way you're speaking about this, that the, the book is not a book of dispassionate history, but rather has an ethical core. And it's a kind of a rallying cry to the reader to uphold, defend, and advance enlightenment values.
1: Absolutely. Let me just, for the sake of your listeners, sometimes I think it's very uh, easy for people, especially today as we live in a modern society, to not appreciate adequately the contribution of the enlightenment. I, I would argue, as many others have, that the enlightenment has been responsible for more prosperity in the last 250 years than in the prior 2000. And I think there are objective stats that bear that out. If you look at 250 years ago, life expectancy on the planet was around 35 years, and now it's um, over 70 everywhere in the world, but for the most part. There are many other stats like that. In 250 years ago, four-fifths of the world, of the globe, lived in tremendous poverty. And today, at that level of poverty, about one fifth of the world is in that level of poverty. So again, there are numerous objective stats that show how this framework of a modern society, if you will, has been really important.
0: And of course, nowadays, everyone's concerned about the direction that enlightenment has brought us in terms of the scientific progress, bringing us to the brink of extinction. There's a dark side to the enlightenment if it's not tempered with wise governance. And that's that's the problem.
1: I think that I would uh, concur, but I think that the notion of the uh, building a constitution of knowledge uh, as it's often referred to which is what the enlightenment has allowed us to do also is the key to providing for solutions like climate change it, it, if we use it at, uh, correctly and I, i'm not saying public policy has solved by by any means all of the woes that we have in the world and, and i think increasingly we're at a point uh, where between the planet as well as this continual warfare, we're really—if—if if you were—I often s- say to, to listeners, if you were a, a foreign species from another planet looking at Earth, you would say this species—they ain't gonna last. <laughs> it doesn't look—it doesn't look very promising given where we are today. And I think that is a really important perspective to have.
0: So uh, let, let's get into the uh, definitions and descriptions of what these two kinds of enlightenments are. And it's pretty clear, I think, that you're uh, a radicalist. <laughs> You'd prefer to have universal suffrage and, and real universal representation, whereas the moderate form, and, and you, you can get into teasing out the details here, is a much more pragmatic one that uh, relies on the elite, uh, aristocratic elite to govern instead.
1: Right. so, so Well, I, I don't know if I would agree with you that I'm a, a uniquely a radical. Let me, let me first, for your listeners, describe the difference. So these two different views of how the republic could be governed in the 18th century, were, were the split was around this notion of what was called at the time an aristocratic republic, which were the elites governing on behalf of the people, very much the model that John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and some of our founders uh, really put forth. And that was certainly the model that Montesquieu wrote about a lot, as well as other philosophers like Locke, about why powers had to be balanced and that, in Hamilton's view, the educated were the people capable of governing of, of, on the behalf of the people.
0: Because they had the background to do so, they had the they had the, the, the intellectual background and the, and the, the education. You didn't use this term in the book, but noblesse oblige. It's this idea that you can be an aristocrat, you can be a you know very wealthy person, and then you sh- should devote your life to public service.
1: That was the concept.
0: Right, Because but nowadays we think of the aristocratic elite or just this uber-wealthy as really looking out mainly for themselves.
1: That's the, that's the dilemma, right? So, so the, the, the notion in the 18th century was the responsibility... For governing and, and some of the great moderate enlighteners like Voltaire and Rousseau, you know, Voltaire was coaching Catherine the Great it's to a large degree. And one could argue whether that model ended up being successful. I think there were certain monarchists who were more enlightened than others. But the point was that the contrast to that model was the notion of a more egalitarian model where the only, and this is what the radical enlightenment believed in, the, that the only sustainable model in a republic was a democratic representative government where the people choose representatives for themselves. And that. so the, the radical enlighteners in, in the US, that would be Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin, and in, were very influenced by the French radical enlightenment. Uh, people like Condorcet and Diderot and Brissot, who very much uh, rejected the notion that people couldn't be educated. They thought people could be educated and that it was incumbent upon the state, in fact, to provide a civic education so, so citizens could, in fact, elect representatives to represent their, their interests. And that was their model. Now, it's good just to, I think your point, I think I'm probably more a radical enlightener than a moderate, but the key thing to remember is I think both models, both models have uh, applicability and... They both bestow benefits on a society, meaning that, of course, I believe in universal suffrage and that all citizens should have a right to vote and express and be heard, have a, have a seat at the table, if you will. But I also think competence matters and merit matters. And it's often what today we call elite often means people who merit from a meritocratic perspective have advanced and can, and have a competence. I always say you wouldn't want Someone who's not a trained surgeon operating on you. Merit matters. And therefore, there are what is disdained by the populist movement often today in terms of elites is uh, problematic. So I think there's something to be said for the importance of this tension, if you will, between this elite view of governance and the more egalitarian one and how those are balanced. And I would argue, and I think the book shows this, that there's in fact been a pendulum-like swing between these different poles over our history, and the balance between those forces are really important.
0: And you point out that the first swings were from the Declaration of Independence, which was an aspirational document by penned by uh, Thomas Jefferson, that really talked about universal suffrage, especially if you stretch the idea of the, the all men actually means all women too, eventually, and, and, and all races too, and, and not just property owners too. That was the aspirational document that that we've ever since trying to live up to. But then by the time of the Constitution, not that that long after, there was the pragmatic needs of governing a new country. And if you're doing that under pressure, you, you of course, want to have the most competent, educated people to do that. But then you're leaving those uh, aspirations behind to some extent.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the great examples of... The model of the tension is, is in fact, just as you mentioned, it's the first part of the book, is that time between the Declaration and 13 years later when the Constitution was written and ratified. And it, 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 I think you nailed it. It's about the practicalities of, all of a sudden, this ideal, which is so powerful in the Declaration, which I think arguably is... The greatest Enlightenment political statement ever written, along with the Declaration of the Rights of Man in in France, a couple of years later. But that ideal was faced with the realities of how to pay for the war, the Revolutionary War. Of course, I'm t- I'm speaking about how to govern thirteen very uh, different colonies, which were now states. How to have a foreign policy? All of those practical needs were urgent and needed solutions. And the folks who had the solutions, like Alexander Hamilton, who was a genius, were competent aristocrats, if you will. They weren't called aristocrats, but they were the elite of their time. And the model, so then the actual constitution itself, the blueprint for how to implement and achieve the ideal in the declaration is very flawed. It's a compromise for a whole bunch of reasons which we can get into. And it's not really this radical egalitarian view from the Declaration. It's much more of a mixed model, like the British constitutional monarchy. You have an executive. Yes, you have a House of Representatives that's representative and egalitarian. But you also have a Senate, which is very aristocratic. So it's this mixed model that gets adopted 13 years following the Declaration. And I, I think that compromise and that set of compromises is a great example of how at times we found a secret sauce to move forward even though there were huge disagreements or divisions in the populace.
0: Yeah, one interesting point you make in the book is that the idea of a balance of powers and checks and balances was not just fear of tyranny by a dictator, but also fear of tyranny by the mob. Absolutely. And so those kind of protection protects both ways. And I guess the fear of the mob goes back to ancient Greece that there were on a small scale democracies that uh, devolved into chaos at times. That and was one of the big fear fears.
1: Back. Yes, that was one of the big fears from some of the the, the moderate enlighteners, like Rousseau. <clears throat> Rousseau, for example, believed that a representative democracy could work in a small republic like Switzerland, like his native Switzerland, but that it was impossible in a, a large country because of the tendency of this kind of mob rule of charlatans or people, leaders with nefarious purposes, misrepresenting and deluding people. Now, famously in Federalist Paper 10, Madison discusses this in detail and explains why in a large country like America, having factions that cancel each other out might allow the system to work, but it doesn't, obviate the fact that there was a big fear of of democracy leading to mob rule. And to be fair, I think you see that in in the populist movements that we've seen over our history. We've seen that at times, including today. There have been populist movements that uh, have been very successful at driving change. One of the ones I talk about a lot in the book is the Farmers' Alliance in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, because that's an example of a bottom-up populist movement that was increasingly concerned about the fact that corporate power, at the time it was big steel and railroads and banks, were not allowing farmers to, to live. And it, the movement of the Farmers' Alliance, the purpose of it was to educate farmers to allow them to buy cooperatively, to force change. And it led to a lot of successful reforms, not immediately. It took a couple of decades till the progressive era, but it was a very good example of a populist movement that was very positive in its effect. And I think at other times we've had populist movements that have been less positive, more more destructive. And so that's a great example of how populism itself is a very interesting concept. On one hand, I think and I discussed this in the book as well, the notion of populism is if it means the fact that the populace, the people, are not getting solutions that work from the governing bodies, they have the right to have grievances and complain. And that's also very much what's driven, I think, our current environment today is that for the last 50 years, let's say, the the elite, the political establishment in the U.S., both Democratic and Republican administrations, have failed to a large degree the working-class American.
0: We were talking about the, the dangers of demagoguery, I guess you could say, that a populist movement, if it's a real issue, can make real progress on, on that. But very often, demagogues are, are just pulling for fear and grievance instead, and we see that, I think, currently. The antidote, which was identified way, way back, is education, universal education, so that the voters can decide things on a valid intellectual basis and not just on passions. But it's so hard to do. It, it seems even with universal education, it's, it seems almost impossible to instill in the, just the average person a real interest in being very well informed. It's a, it's a big problem.
1: I agree, but I, I that it's a problem, but I, I think it's a problem because we've so poorly advanced the idea of civic education we failed as a society so so horribly in the last I would say two generations e- even when I was in high school and I'm, i guess I'm probably older than most of your listeners we had debate, debate clubs were really important. And the notion of c- civics, not just being a class, but the notion of this of, of the civic debate and dialogue being fundamental to problem solving in society, if we're going to live in a social contract, if we're going to get along and, and live in a society, was so fundamental that it was really, I think, valued. I think we've lost a lot of that. You see it today in the fact that I think STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, they've crowded out civic education at all levels in our society. I think there is a huge problem with the crumbling of what used to be the journalistic profession, which over the 19th century grew out of a preponderance of yellow journalism. So we created this profession, which is all about research and journalism really being based on fact-finding and it seems like with digital media today and a whole bunch of other reasons which we could get into, that is crumbling. And so it's very easy for, as I say in the book, for, any, for every citizen to have his or her own set of facts, which isn't conducive to problem solving. It, it seems almost impossible today, but I don't think it is impossible. I think that we've had examples in history when recently, when we've really been able to forge solutions. And most recently, there are a couple, uh, there, it seems like it's a while ago now, but throughout the following the race riots and a lot of the problems in the 60s, there were some real solutions that were put forth even throughout the early 70s. And and in other areas, there've been more recent examples. But my, my point being is that I, I don't think we can abandon the quest for civic education and the importance of problem solving oriented around fact finding and truth.
0: So it sounds like you might share my nostalgia for Walter Cronkite.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Back when there were only three active TV stations and they all presented pretty much the same news so that we had a common, at least floor for discussion.
1: So from an economic perspective, public for in- accurate information is a public good. And so what was, what, created that environment that you referred to as what was called the Fairness Doctrine. So be, because the networks were on public airways, they were required to present a balanced point of view, a true, truly a balanced point of view, and factual-based journalism was really valued. And of course, we've moved away from that today. It, it was Reagan in the 80s that got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, and I think uh, we're seeing the ramifications of that.
0: One thing that we haven't mentioned yet, and I, I think it, it uh, relates to the- the problems of the counter-enlightenment is the role of religion in in government, that um, many of the founding fathers rejected a belief in a personal God. They were either atheist or they believed in deism, which posits a God who created the world but doesn't intervene, or else takes an approach similar to Spinoza that equates God with nature. But in, in either case, they advocated a separation between church and state, that the government should neither interfere nor support any particular belief or practice. And I, I, I think that in your book, you, you point to religion as potentially problematic, but not only problematic. That it an impo- I think there was a recognition by the founding fathers that religion played an important role in, in creating social cohesion and support. But that if it becomes a kind of a weapon, weaponized by the government, then you have a real problem.
1: That's right. It's the associate Faith is a fundamental uh, and important part of people's lives of many people's lives of all different faiths having faith and believing in spirituality of some kind whether it's an organized religion or it's other beliefs that may be less traditional is such an important part of the human experience but i think that we've gotten into trouble and our founders recognize this when faith and becomes associated with power for example The reason why this notion of separation of church and state comes out of the radical enlightenment, where the French radicals in particular documented, and there was a guy named Holbach, H-O-L-B-A-C-H, who wrote a lot about this, how for centuries there was a collusion between the monarchy in Europe and the church to oppress people, that there was this tacit cooperation, which was very, very destructive, very hurtful to to the, the commoners, And so I think that's what led to our radicals, like Jefferson, writing that separation of church and state is so important, that one has not only the freedom of religion, but the freedom from religion. So I think think faith is really an important part of the human experience, and there are a lot of examples that I talk about in the book. It was during the Second Great Awakening, which was a faith-based movement at the turn of the, the 18th to the 19th century, that... Led to uh, a lot of great changes. Uh, the abolitionist movement came out of a lot of that, not entirely, but it was a big, a big proponent of abolitionism, along with other forces. It was first time through faith that women had a voice in the community to be uh, c- compared to the revolutionary times. So faith's been really important. But if faith is a, lo- a certain particular faith is aligned with power, I think it has a great power, a great, pow- a great a tendency to corrupt, and that's what we have to be careful of.
0: Well, and also religion has been used, I think, to foster a sense of complacency. A kind of a, You mollify the lower classes by saying, you'll get yours in the next world or, or the next incarnation. That You just sit tight for now. It's okay that, that you, we have power over you and that we're, we have all the wealth and you have almost none. That's okay because the meek will inherit the earth and so
1: on. There's a fascinating uh, debate uh, in, in, during the, the Enlightenment times about the role of religion. Like Voltaire, who was a very important moderate Enlightenment, was very critical of religion a- a- and aspects of the government, but yet he also believed that the, the church authority was important in the republic. So he rejected this notion of a separation of church and state in some ways. And so that, that is an important discussion.
0: Getting to the broader issue of the counter-enlightenment, it's not, it isn't a counter-enlightenment, it's many counter enlightenments, I would think. The, when counter-enlightenment forces occurred, there was a kind of resentment of the elite by certain factions. And sometimes religion would be mobilized against the elite. So it's, religion has played both sides. It's, sometimes it's protected the elites and sometimes it's tried to undermine them.
1: Right, I, I think, like, if you look in, the, if you, I mean, the entire movement in the '60s relating to civil rights, Martin Luther King was a preacher, and religion was the, 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 very much uh, the impetus for the drive and the, the moral imperative for equality, if you will. So there's no question that. But at the same time, religion has also been used as a force when the elite establishment has ignored the needs of the people. And I think that's important to recognize as well.
0: So how would you fit in the kind of the rise of the evangelical movement in in this country, particularly Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell? And evangelicals used to be apolitical. They really, I think, accepted the idea that religion and politics should be not intertwined, but that changed in the 60s and 70s starting.
1: That's a great example. I think that the evangelical church in the U.S has increasingly, over, over the decades, and this is pretty pretty clear from the, evi- from the evidence, has gotten close to power and has been very active in promoting g- government policies. I think our founders would not have appreciated that. I think that, that the notion of the civic arena and the religious arena being in separate spheres, again, was their model. And so I, I, I don't think that Any church, whether it's the evangelical Christian church or the the Islamic movement, any church should not be involved in dictating public policy. That's for the the people to decide through a civic process.
0: And then another part of the backlash, which doesn't seem to come from the elites per se, although maybe it's elites who are joining forces with populist forces, which I guess is nowadays seems to be often the case, that the, the interest of the very wealthy and of the downtrodden, so to speak, working class is a combining force in a way. But you talked about the the backlash against Obama's presidency, for instance, Obama, just symbolically being a a black person was a kind of expression of the radical enlightenment, its inclusion, anyone could make it even to president. And I think a, a lot of people felt very inspired by that, but a lot of other people felt threatened by it. And so then you had this backlash not by religion per se, but somehow these forces get all mixed up together and it's hard to tease out.
1: Yeah, but that's been a common pattern. So, so let me use an example. Following the Civil War in Reconstruction, by, um, if you look at the way Reconstruction proceeded, even after Lincoln was assassinated and the, what we call the, the radical Republicans in Congress really drove the agenda, By 1868 or 1869, in this former slave states, in the Confederate states, around 80% of former uh, slaves, African Americans, were voting. And there was a a real swell of participation in the political process. But fast forward 15 years after Reconstruction fails and falls apart, and the Southern states reinstill what were the precursor to Jim Crow laws, Black Codes, and Organizations like the Klux Klan are are growing. I think 15 years later, around 5% of African Americans were voting. So, in in a period of 15 years, you had this huge pendulum swing from a more participatory, franchised citizenry of of all classes and races. And then 15 years later, it was completely different. And I think that's the notion of this pendulum like swing. So, to your point, I think very much Obama, Trump, or that. That kind of the, the swing between where we were years ago and a couple of years ago, not that long ago, and where we are now is not that there weren't strong uh, feelings on in different parts of the populace, but just that they were given voice. I think now what you're seeing is, yes, very much a, a reaction to uh, the Obama years that you're seeing to play out today.
0: But my, my point was that y- you have entrenchment because the elite might feel threatened so, you know, the people who are in more powerful groups, so in, in the South, it was, of course, the white slave owners who lost their slaves. But you also have, I think, less wealthy people who maybe symbolically used to feel like they were, had a, a higher status. So it's a combination of the money classes, but also just symbolically being in the, the in group or the upper group.
1: Yeah, I think that's certainly true. But I think that what you have today is this very much, there's been, a, again, an implicit tacit collusion, if you will, between the moneyed class in the elite and working class Americans that are funding, that, that provide the, the motivation. And this goes back, Stuart, to a political phenomenon that we've seen over the past 50 years or even less, that I think politicians of both parties have realized that what motivates voters to turn out are not economic or rational issues, but divisive issues, issues that promote fear or anger, that those are much better motivators for mobilizing voters than our kitchen table economic issues. So both parties now, instead of focusing on solving problems, and this is part of the structural incentive problem that I talk about in in American Schism, the book, There's no incentive for public elected officials to solve problems. On the contrary, I argue there's an incentive to keep problems brewing because they help motivate voters. And I think soliciting or or evoking anger, fear, that seems to be the mode that many politicians use to stay in office, which has, of course, become more important than solving public policy problems.
0: And, and one, of the, one of the fears during Reconstruction was the fear that uh, former slaves would rise up and start killing white people, uh, which happened in, in Haiti. And, and also a fear of maybe something like the wave of terror in the French Revolution, that, that, that the, the, the privileged people are, are, can't be safe unless they continue to be repressive, that kind of logic.
1: There, there are many forms of, there are many aspects that create what we're calling the counter enlightenment. It could be a religious power issue. It could be rejection of reason uh, for various reasons. So these are all counter enlightenment forces that play different roles. I think, but absolutely the notion that the the model that we're in today, if we look at today's society, we have a double incentive problem. Political leaders are not incentivized to solve problems. They are incentivized to to raise fear, to stir fear. And the media, because its entire economic model is based on how many people they attract, eyeballs, they're also sensationalist and attracting fear and anger and not solving problems. So you've got this double incentive problem, both in terms of the political industry as a whole and the media industry. This is one of the reasons why what I spend a lot of my time doing now is working on civic reform in terms of election reform. Uh, Things like Open primaries, ranked choice voting, things where there are structural solutions to allow for better cooperation, for better problem solving in the civic arena. And I can give you your listeners may be aware of some of this. There are some great examples. In in, in a state that has closed primaries, since most of the districts in, in the Congress have been gerrymandered, it's the primaries that count. So if there are closed primaries, it means the most, the core extreme Republicans and Democrats are going to determine who holds the seat. So let's say I'm a congressperson in Kentucky and it's a safe red district. If as a congressperson in that district, if I uh, dare cooperate with the Democrat on finding a solution, I'll be immediately primaried to the right. And because it's a closed primary in Kentucky, the uh, extreme Republicans will pick A more extreme candidate. And that's how we get people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC in in Congress today. These are candidates who, because of the process, have been motivated by the extreme parts of their parties.
0: Yeah, it's a kind of a recipe for tribalism. And you just vote according to your tribe.
1: Now, we have examples where that's, we've solved that. Look at what's going on in Alaska. Alaska's been an an incredible case where. The, you know, through rank choice voting and through other structural reforms, there's a much more cooperative governing happening at both the, in the Senate and and the Assembly there, which is really bipartisan and solving problems. So at the local level, through these reforms, we're seeing a lot of change. And that's what I believe will become a model for how we need to move forward.
0: Right. Local and also intermediary size, the state size. So that's not, it's amazing yeah, let's uh, spend the last part of uh, the last third of our interview talking about solutions because otherwise, it's too depressing. <laughs> and and there I think there are reasons for hope. So you mentioned about ranked choice voting and open primaries. Open primary means that it's not by party. in always that all of the candidates of of whatever party are in together, and it's a top two.
1: Yes, there's a couple of different models. One is, the t- is it like the top five in an open, in a nonpartisan primary, but there are other models. One way of doing open primaries is allowing non-registered voters, independents, to pick one primary they can vote in. So that, that's also a model that's being used in some states, so it doesn't have to be one nonpartisan primary. It just means that all voters have the right to vote in a primary. To your point, though, there are many solutions that are out there. The way I think about it, Stuart, is, and I talk about this in the last part of the book, is I think the solution space requires two fundamentally different approaches. One, On one hand, you have what I call the kind of the mindset approach about how we as citizens relate to each other, which is a kind of a fundamental, as a psychologist, I'm sure this is something that is right up your alley, but how we think about The the civic arena in relation to other citizens. And then the other part are structural reforms. I think there are definitely examples where, because of structural problems, the democracy as we know it is not functioning correctly. Okay, so so let's talk about both of those for a second. On the mindset side, there are organizations today, I'll use one example, Braver Angels, which is their entire focus is getting people who might have different political viewpoints to talk to each other in a meaningful way, listen to each other, and relate in a way that's very different than the way people relate today in social media. Uh, And that's the movement around Braver Angels, which is now a national-based organization, but that's grassroots, that's happening all over the country. Very powerful, because I, I think when you really know your neighbors and you really speak to them, you're much more likely to find common ground. And there are other examples that are in this space as well. I call it the mindset how we talk to each other. There, there are groups that are forming citizen assemblies to solve problems, where as opposed to elected officials, randomly selected citizens get into a room, work on pro- proposing solutions to local problems that then get voted on. So there, there are many examples of this kind of mindset change.
0: If I could just jump in about the last one, but it's deliberative democracy or, or citizen assemblies, also known as sortition, that's been used in countries. It was used in Ireland to work on the problem of abortion because Ireland had a, one of the most restrictive sets of laws on abortion in the world, and it was creating a lot of tension. And so they had, I think, 100 people, randomly selected citizens, work on it for quite a long time. And I think it was like hundreds and hundreds of hours of discussion and research so the idea being that it would be a very well thought out proposal that would come out of that committee. And I suppose, I don't know all the details on this, but I suppose the legislature decided in advance that they would take the advice very seriously. They wouldn't just say, oh, it's just an advisory committee. We can ignore them. That's not what happens. And, and the law changed. And I, I, my understanding is that maybe not everybody's completely happy with it. There's at least a sense of legitimacy for, for whatever changes were made.
1: And so I think those are examples of the fact that screaming at each other across Twitter is not going to solve a problem, that that the problem-solving solution space needs to be deliberative. It needs to involve deep, what I call deep listening and compromise. And there are ways to make that happen, whether it's through citizen assemblies or through groups like Braver Angels, that's one side. Then the other side, the structural changes are some of the stuff that we were just talking about, which is that if if we have districts that have been completely gerrymandered so that elections are no longer fair, that's what I call cheating. <laughs> and so, so We have to be very clear about calling these things what they are. The, the way districts have been gerrymandered, if you took an empirical approach to drawing districts, you would use geometry and linear programming to draw districts that are completely independent of The way we draw them today so my point is these structural problems that have become that are all situations in which for political purposes we're not using a fact-based empirical framework to solve a problem drawing districts would be one things like closed primaries are another one i would argue that the way elections are funded today campaign finance reform and what's happened there is also a structural barrier so these are all things that I work very closely on today. And we're, and I think the change that's happening, and it is indeed happening, it's usually coming first at the local level, like in Alaska, as I mentioned before, or other states in Colorado, there's increasingly in, in, in states that they've, for example, business leaders have become involved in state assemblies to convince assembly members to appoint Nonpartisan or bipartisan, that's a trend that's starting to happen. So you're seeing these structural barriers being eroded little by little, but I think it's gaining steam. And I'm hopeful that things like ranked choice voting, which is a superior form of voting because it more closely represents people's desires. If in a, in a ranked choice system, what happens for, for your listeners who are not aware today, whenever there's a third party candidate in most elections, that third party candidate becomes a spoiler, taking votes from one of the top two and that usually has that effect. In a ranked choice voting scenario, you have multiple candidates and therefore you have a greater, a richer pool of ideas in the debate space. And then the field gets winnowed down. So if there are six candidates running, everyone ranks their first, second and third choice, let's say. And then if your first choice happens to be like in last place, all of a sudden your vote still counts because your second choice gets the vote. So it, 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 sometimes it seems a little confusing, but it's really very straightforward. And ranked choice voting is one of the ways to uh, fix some of these structural barriers.
0: We actually have ranked choice voting in Las Cruces for mayor. And our most recent mayoral election took about 12 rounds to actually elect the mayor. And, and it was a little bit of a surprise. The person that we thought would win came in second. But I think the way that it works is if, let's say, if you have 12 candidates and nobody gets above 50 percent, then you drop the lowest one try again. Right. And you distribute the votes to that sixth place person to everyone else. If it's still not 50 percent, you keep going and going.
1: Right. Take like an immediate runoff.
0: Exactly. And it it, it's, it saves a lot of money also rather than having to have a runoff election.
1: Correct. And, and so that so one of the one of the more progressive, if you will, or models that are probably less impinged by these structural problems would be like an open primary where they all the candidates are in one primary, the top five go to the runoff using ranked choice voting. And, and you know, so that's a model what's called top five or that's being used in some local elections quite successfully. So I think more and more these structural reforms will be adopted.
0: Yeah, in your book you talk about top-down versus bottom-up change. And th- this sounds very much like a bottom-up change because it's happening more at the local at best at the state level to happen at the federal level is going to take a lot of pressure because the system is so entrenched and has so many checks and balances that and when was the last time we had an amendment to the constitution? It's so hard to do.
1: Okay. So this is, I'm really glad you brought this up. It, that's very true. But if you look at history, most of our big change has happened first at the, at the local level. Women's suffrage started off in, in two or three states before it finally took off. So yeah, I think one of the beauties, and this is one of the powers of the the United States, our model is that because of federalism, local experiments that happen in the country that provide evidence of positive changes can then get adopted elsewhere. And so Mm -hmm. I think, yes, I think when you look at reforms, in the country that have happened at the local level, what happens is like women's suffrage. It happened in a couple of states, and then it gained steam, and all of a sudden it moves forward. I think the same thing happened. I think more recently, in terms of support for gay marriage, I think there was when I was young, most people it was very much a counterintuitive. Most people that would not support gay marriage, but I think more the kind of the movement for gay marriage were able to successfully demonstrate to Americans that. Love commitment and love is not a, a, a scarce good. It can happen in a way that's egalitarian. I think they convinced Americans that gay marriage, and of course not all Americans support it, but a majority have, and it's been adopted. So there have been other things that have happened at a local level that have then. I think we're at, we're at that point. I think I'm hopeful with reasonable gun legislation. That I, I how long right. how many kids will have to be killed at school shootings before we recognize that automatic weapons, even if you're a hunter and a big Second Amendment person, that automatic weapons should not be given to, 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 to 17-year-olds. So there, there's a lot of, I think, movement that I'm hopeful will start to snowball. And I hope we're in that situation now.
0: So another dimension I want to bring in that you, you do cover in your book is the ever-increasing trends of concentration of wealth, that we've become effectively a plutocracy, that the very, very wealthy have outsized uh, capacity for speech and influence. And I'm not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how that gets diminished from the bottom up.
1: That's a huge structural problem because we've become a plutocracy, And this has been written about for quite a while. Thomas Piketty has done some great, the French economists has done some great research on this. The way that it has to get eradicated or, or at least diminished in terms of its political repercussions is by really enforcing the notion of one voice, one vote. And I think ever since Citizens United and even before, the influence of money in politics has become corruptive. And that has to change. Now, there's a group that I work with called American Promise. And they are very interesting nonpartisan group that's proposing an amendment to the constitution, a one sentence amendment that will change how elections are financed. And I encourage your listeners to take a look at their work I think it's very powerful, so I think that camp, the answer to, to, to that problem in terms of power and money, in terms of its again, if it's there's a whole set of reasons economically and morally why an extreme concentration of wealth is not a good thing. I'm not talking about those arguments today. That's that would take us a whole other session. I'm talking about the fact that once that ha- that once a society is that imbalanced. A, the political power of that elite—that one percent or tenth of one percent—has bec- become so enormous that we no longer are in what I would call a democracy, but we're effectively a plutocracy.
0: And it's difficult to change because of the constitutional rights about freedom of expression, and, and that's been interpreted to mean political speech as well as political advertising. Very, really hard to reverse that.
1: I don't know. I think we, yeah, yes. In, if you take, if you look at it that way. It's hard it's not, and there's no question that political speech because of our first Amendment, is considered the most protected speech, but I'll give you, I'll give you an analogy I used to run proactive, which was the leading acne brand. And we would run around $6 million of advertising every week in various forms of media, TV, digital, every single ad that proactive would put on the airwaves or on the internet had to be regulated for, by two agencies, one by the FDA for drug claims and another by the FTC for marketing claims. So the notion that we're not allowed to to fool consumers or that information has to be correct doesn't necessarily always impinge on our freedom of speech. Now, because political speech seems to be the most protected, I argue that until we can find a way of uh, refunding elections through either public funding or that we should ban political advertising, at least in, in TV... And allow it only in long form because it's been political advertising, in let's say in TV, has become so protected, quote unquote, that you can say almost anything and it can't be regulated. Every political ad is a complete hoax. And so the whole arena no longer functions productively, in my view. And that's become, again, a structural barrier. So I do believe we have to rethink things like election advertising as well as things like term limits. And there's a whole bunch of things that again are structural that we need to change.
0: Yeah, that, that's a tough one about, let's say having disclaimers for political ads, or, or it'd be really hard to have a group that everyone would agree on as being the arbiter of truth. It's much easier in, in the realm of medicine, that's hard enough, but in political uh, speech, that's way harder.
1: So why do we, until we so if that's not possible, then why do we allow political advertising? There are other democracies that have very strict regulations on how advertising in politics works.
0: And the words from Fiddler on the Roof, it's tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Goes back to uh, Adams and Jefferson trashing each other. It's, uh, you know, it used to be that every political party had its own newspaper that trashed everybody else. Goes way back.
1: Absolutely. But, and we've struggled with it for a long time, but it's other democratic republics, other open societies have addressed this. Uh, I, th- I think the, the notion of freedom of speech in the First Amendment is not limitless. And our justices have certainly ruled on that. And if speech is leading to violence, if there, there are a whole bunch of e- examples where it needs to be regulated. And so this is all of our uh, rights, all of our freedoms, both our positive and our negative freedoms, they, ha- they need to be balanced. And the, the, this is something that we need to grapple with, our freedom in the Second Amendment to, to bear arms. It's not absolute. It needs to be balanced.
0: The United States might have been the first republic to, to work according to democratic values. But unfortunately, because of the extremes of our individualism and, and belief in, in freedom of expression is, is so extreme and so in, imbalanced, as I think we're both getting at. I, my prediction, unfortunately, is a little pessimistic. I think other countries will succeed at this before we do. I, th- I think Europe is much further along than we are already.
1: Yes, I think that's right. But but, but see, here's the, this goes back. This is where I mentioned before mindset changes and structural changes. This is where they cross over because the, the mindset side says, wait a minute, invariably, and all groups, both on the extreme left and right, talk almost incessantly today about their rights, their freedoms and their rights. We have to, if we want to be in a community, we have to also recognize our responsibilities. Oh, it's not only about our rights and freedoms. It's about what responsibilities do we have to each other in a community. And I think that's where uh, we've fallen off the rails a bit. So I'm wondering if
0: we're in a race against time in a sense, because there's so many countries, not just this one, that are trending autocratic. So that's, that's the kind of ultimate of anti-enlightenment, of counter-enlightenment is when things, be, the government becomes ruled by an autocrat and human rights are curtailed and violence happens. It seems to be happening more and more. I don't know if it's because of the, the pressures of climate change or, or what have you, but, but it seems like we're, we're in a moment that's very dangerous and not just here.
1: There's no question that in today's world, it seems that the autocratic model is more effective and efficient in governing and whether it's the autocratic model, like of a Putin, which, or or one like a Xi in China, or go through the examples, Turkey, Hungary, and, and largely, I don't think it's only because of climate change, or I think it's because of the way media works today. It's very easy to weaponize propaganda in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. And democracy, it's difficult. It's not the best form of government by any means. It's just the, the better than all the other ones, as Winston Churchill said. And it's a very inefficient and difficult form of government. Now, now I think the, the best way I can describe this is Daniel Allen, the professor at Harvard, writes a lot about this. If we want to have a democracy, if we're committed to democracy, we have to be all in. We have to be committed to it and defend it. And make it find ways to make it work. And if we don't, if we're not all in on having a democratic form of government, then autocracy will ultimately win.
0: I think that's maybe a good time to to stop. Seth David Radwell, the author of American Schism: How the Two, Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation, which won the International Book Award for Best General Nonfiction. Thank you so much for coming on to delving in. It's been really enlightening, <laughs> and as well as inspiring.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. I appreciate it.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.